1: Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti, and do I have a story for you guys today. I'm so excited to be here talking about the life and legacy of Selma Burke, and many of you out there probably have never heard her name, and yet you carry around a piece of her legacy in your purse every day. We're going to get into exactly what I mean by that in a little bit, but I'm so pleased to announce that I worked with a fellow podcaster and history lover on this episode. Myself and Kayla Stokes of Bias Bender Podcast collaborated on this episode. She loves history and Google Docs just as much as I do, so i was so excited to work with her. And to kick off the episode, I actually was able to interview Kayla about her podcast, Bias Bender, along with where she gets her inspiration for the stories that she tells and the importance of Black history. And people like Selma Burke who were left out of history textbooks who for so many years were undercredited for the strides they made because of their skin color. We need to shed light on these stories in order to get closer to the truth. And so Kayla and I chat about this uh, before the story and after the story in this episode. So definitely stay tuned until the very end. So before we get into this episode of Thick and Thin, I'd love to introduce my research partner in crime, Kayla Stokes. Kayla is the host of Bias Bender Podcast, where she recounts stories of Black women, past and present. She does an amazing job of storytelling over there. And I've been so honored to work with her on the story of Selma Burke. Uh, but before we dive into the story and our research that we did together, I want Kayla to kind of introduce herself, talk about her podcast, Bias Bender, and how she gets inspiration for what she does. Sure. Hi. Hello. I'm Kayla
2: Stokes. And like Katie said, I have a podcast called Bias Bender. Um, I started it about six months ago now as sort of a project mainly for myself, because I realized that I am a Black woman and I don't know enough about Black women. Uh, So I started this journey mostly just trying to figure out for myself how I can educate myself. And I figured that other people also needed some more information. So... It served as a thing that held myself accountable for, okay, each week I'm gonna learn about a black woman from the past and I'm gonna spend my week reading about her and honoring her story. And then at the end of the week, I have this cool archival episode that someone else can listen to and learn about a person that they wouldn't have known about before. And yeah, I've been having like so much fun with it. Um, I didn't imagine that I would be doing it For this long, even, but I know that there are so many women that I still haven't even scratched the surface with. So I feel like I could do this forever.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. And you, like me, we both love history. Has this always been something you've loved, like digging into the past and relating it to the present? I love how you weave your stories together. Like where does this come from with within you, like your past?
2: Yeah, I, well, I love stories. I think that's been my gateway into it is that I'm a storyteller. I grew up with, you know, stories by the fire, stories, bedtime stories and all that kind of stuff. So that's always been my passion. I'm a theater person. I'm a theater nerd. So like stories are my way in. Um, but I didn't think that I was a history person until I started this project, really, because I kind of always thought that history wasn't mm, related to me um, because the history classes I went to growing up weren't about people who looked like me. They, I was never like the focus, a little, you know, skinny, nerdy black girl was not like the main story ever. So, I thought that like history is about presidents and wars. <laughs> but um recently I've learned that it's so much more and I'm so into
1: it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um so yeah. with the subjects that you choose for your episodes, where do you get the inspiration for these women that you're choosing like where do you find them how do you get inspired and how do you even figure out who these people are to begin with and then further research them
2: that's such a good question and i feel like it changes every single week sometimes it's like a random instagram post i'll see and someone has posted like did you know that you know this black woman did this and i'm like no i i did not (laughs) let me google that um and then sometimes it's an internal uh sort of inspiration where I will think about like, huh, I don't know any black female scientists. So let me just Google black female scientists and like go down the rabbit hole and see where that leads me. And it always leads me something like to somewhere very, very interesting. So it's a combination of like random insight or sometimes I get lucky and someone emails me a cool article (laughs) And I'm like, oh, great. There's
1: this week's episode. (laughs) So we'll get to hear more from Kayla in a little bit. But let's get into the story, shall we? Let's take things back in time and get started with the story of Selma Burke. So our story begins on December 31st, 1900 in Mooresville, North Carolina. This was the day that Selma Burke came into the world. This is when she was born. And a little bit about her hometown. So Mooresville is a large town. That's located around a 40-minute drive north of Charlotte, North Carolina. It's named after John Franklin Moore, who was a local farmer. And the town was actually only officially incorporated not long before Selma was born in 1873. Before then, it was occupied by mostly cotton plantations. However, the end of the Civil War and the addition of a railroad in town brought in a shift of industry. Today, you might know Mooresville as Race City USA because of its ties to the NASCAR industry and Lowe's Home Improvement Corporate Headquarters is based there. But back when Selma was growing up, it was mostly a rural area that was still reckoning with its newfound status post-Civil War. Selma was the seventh of ten children in her family, and her parents were Reverend Neal and Mrs. Mary Elizabeth Cofield-Burke. Her father, Reverend Burke, was not just a minister. He also worked as a railroad brakeman and a chef aboard internationally traveling ships in order to make a proper living. He would bring back art pieces and artifacts from his journeys to the Caribbean, Africa, South America, and Europe— And Selma treasured these items. She grew to appreciate art from a variety of cultures at a young age. She also had two uncles who were known to collect international artifacts. They were both missionaries for their church. And while they traveled throughout Africa, they acquired a large collection of different pieces that they brought back with them to the States. And when they passed away, Selma's family inherited these pieces. So they were very much a part of Selma's world from a young age. I've known African art my whole life, Selma said in 1970. At a time when this sculpture was misunderstood and laughed at, my family had the attitude that these were beautiful objects. Selma's love for sculpture first started when she was a child handling clay on her family's farm. Selma and her siblings were down by a nearby riverbed gathering white clay from the water in order to whitewash a fireplace in their home. Selma loved the feeling of the clay and realized that she wanted to sculpt and make art with it around the age of seven. She's quoted as saying, I saw the imprint of my hands in the clay. I found that I could make something, something that I alone had created. It was there in 1907 that I discovered me. Selma's sister, Geneva, reflected on the art projects her sister would work on while they were kids. One time I laughed at my sister when the little house she made out of clay got washed away. She lashed back at me and said, one of these days, I'm going to do something with my stuff that you won't laugh at. Education was really important to Selma and her family. Her education was fostered by multiple educational institutions throughout her childhood. The options for schooling in Mooresville as a black child were limited to one-room schoolhouses. Selma's parents wanted more educational opportunities for their kids, so they sent Selma to a private boarding school in Washington, D.C. Selma's time at this college prep school only lasted a year, though, Because while the school had a robust curriculum, they didn't offer any courses that could foster Selma's budding artistic mind. For the remainder of high school, Selma received her formal education through private tutoring and by traveling to Winston-Salem to attend high school. Even though Winston-Salem was about 50 miles away from her home, she made the trek to travel there because they were the next closest high school that accepted Black students. And once Selma graduated from high school, she moved to Winston-Salem to attend what was then called... Slater Industrial and Normal School. Selma's sister said that their mother once told Selma, you can't live off art, while she was hard at work carving on a tree branch. Her mother, Mary, warned her that she needed to have a practical career to fall back on, so she urged her daughter to attend nursing school.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Download the free Angie Mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's ANGI.com.
2: Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
1: Salma attended St. Agnes School of Nursing in Raleigh, North Carolina and graduated in 1924. And this turned out to be a ticket for Selma to move up north. Just a year after graduating from nursing school, Selma moved up to Philadelphia in hopes of finding employment there. At the time, the medical community was cracking down on the capacity to which nurses could work. Even though nurses like Selma were trained in anesthesiology, hospitals were being pressured to leave these tasks to male doctors, So in order to broaden her skills and stay ahead of these crackdowns, Selma went on to receive further training from a medical school in Philadelphia. After Selma completed her studies at the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania in 1929, she was recommended to work as a live-in nurse for a wealthy heiress. We're not too sure who exactly the heiress was, But Selma spent four years as this woman's benefactor. And through this opportunity, the heiress was able to expose Selma to New York's most forward-thinking, cultural, and social pillars of the time. So in a way, Selma's mother actually helped push her daughter into having an art career by insisting she have a practical career as well. Selma just got more invested in art. 1935 was a big year for Selma Burke. This was the year that she began pursuing sculpting professionally. She moved to New York City and modeled for classes while studying art at Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville. 1935 was also the year that Selma was awarded her first grant from the Rosenwald Fund. And this fund was specifically dedicated to helping black men and women gain educational opportunities. This grant allowed Selma to dedicate more time and effort into her artistic studies, which is what she was truly passionate about. She then enrolled in Columbia University's MFA ceramics program in 1937, and this allowed her to study her craft full-time while she continued to draw inspiration from the artists living in Harlem. And fun fact, one of her classmates during this time was actually Margot Einstein, the daughter of Albert Einstein. In 1938, Selma traveled through Europe for a year, She visited Germany, Austria, Italy, and France, and her growing network of artists led her to a relationship with a man named Hans Boller, an expressionist artist of the time. They made art together and traveled throughout Europe in order to collaborate and learn from legendary artists during this year abroad. While in Paris, Selma worked under legendary printmaker, painter, and sculptor Henri Matisse, whom she cites as one of her many influences. And according to a book called Out of the Miry Clay written about Selma's life, Matisse liked her work. He told me to loosen up, stay free, and be open and honest, Selma said. He said that I had a big talent, and he wanted me to add size and volume in my drawings. He wanted me to open up as a person. And that's Selma speaking about Matisse. So Selma's sculptures featured inspiration from all corners of the world. The figures she created are curvaceous and full. While she learned from European artists, her style maintains African sensibilities that emphasize Black features, Her art captured the world and people as she saw them. After a year in Europe, Selma returned to New York City and Columbia University in 1939. All the while, she was also showing her work at increasingly visible galleries across the city. She received her graduate MFA degree from Columbia and continued to have her work shown in galleries that were showing the most progressive works of the time. She rubbed shoulders with artists who were working to push the limits of what art could be. While Selma was passionate about art and gave it her all, she was no stranger to working outside of her medium when she needed to. In 1942, World War II was in full swing, and civilians were being asked to help out with the war efforts. Selma stepped up and took a job as a truck driver in Brooklyn Navy Yard. Unfortunately, she was injured while doing this job and was briefly hospitalized but it was during her recovery that she learned about a very important competition and that competition led her to the president of the United States. If you were to dig in your coin purse, pull out a shiny American dime and look at it really closely, you'll notice a tiny JS engraved into its face just below Franklin Delano Roosevelt's neck. The JS stands for John Sinnock, the U.S. Mint's chief engraver from the years 1925 to 1947. Officially speaking, John Sinnock is the one credited with sculpting the profile of the 32nd president on the face of the dime. However, what if we told you this is very likely fake news or not the full story? Institutions like the Smithsonian American Art Museum, even Roosevelt's son, say that FDR's profile etched into the face of the dime might actually deserve a different set of initials underneath. SB standing for none other than Selma Burke. Selma was 43 years old when she won a Commission of Fine Arts competition and the opportunity to sculpt the president's likeness for the new Recorder of Deeds building in Washington, D.C. This was a super rare opportunity, and Selma was given photographs of the president to base her sculpture off of. But she ran into some problems while working. Selma felt that the photographs didn't properly capture FDR's likeness. To do it right, she said she'd need to have an in-person, one-on-one meeting with the president. So, she asked for one. And to her surprise, the White House sent her an invitation. I called the president and told him I had a Ford car and could drive to Washington to sketch him, Selma later recounted in an interview. He gave me a 15-minute appointment on February 22, 1944. I was in such a hurry to get to Washington that I ran to a butcher store and asked them to give me a roll of white butcher's paper, likely for sketching. She threw it in her bag and went. Selma walked into the White House wearing a hat full of fruit. Apparently, one of her brothers was totally shocked that she chose to wear such an ensemble for the meeting, but when FDR saw her colorful hat, he loved it. And the two spent so much time talking, way beyond the time that she had been allotted for the meeting originally, and she ended up sketching the president for four hours over two days. The version of FDR that Selma met wasn't his prime. The president was in poor health weathered and aged but she chose to look past these details and depict him in a much younger more capable form when asked why she decided to portray him this way she said i made it for tomorrow and tomorrow i don't want people to feel something about a wrinkled old man i want to give the feeling of a strong roman gladiator that we could feel was strong and would lead our country it took Selma two years to complete the sculpture. And sadly, FDR never got to see Selma's finished piece. He died just before the bronze plaque titled Four Freedoms was unveiled just two years after their initial meeting. Roosevelt had been a founder of what became the March of Dimes today, which is a nonprofit dedicated to the health of mothers and babies. And so immediately following his death, it was decided that his likeness would become the new face of the US dime. And prior to this, the dime held the face of Roman God Mercury. By 1946, just a year after his passing, a new design had been chosen and put into mass production. And so if you look closely at today's dime with that 1946 design, you'll notice that small JS under his neck, crediting John Sinnock. He got the credit, but many feel it looks eerily similar to Selma's sculpture of the president. Look up a photo after you listen to this episode and let me know what you think. It's kind of crazy how similar they are. A little bit suspicious if you ask me. In my opinion, it's clear that Selma was ripped off. And to place things in history a bit, it was two full decades before the civil rights movement gained real steam. that This was all happening, so unfortunately it was rather easy to rip off a black woman for work that was rightfully hers at this time. According to Lisa Farrington, author of Creating Their Own Image, The History of African American Women Artists, Sinek made, quote, barely perceptible alterations. The most evident distinctions were the jutting chin and the steeply sloping forehead and nose in Burke's composition, which she believed gave the president that wonderful look of going forward, Farrington wrote. Selma later said that in 1945, she'd received a phone call in the middle of the night. And on the other end of the phone was Ruth Wilson, a secretary at the recorder of Deed's office, a.k.a. the location of Selma's final bronze piece, made of the President, where it was on display. And so Ruth Wilson told Selma that John Sinnock had come to look at her plaque not long after its unveiling and that he had taken at least one of her drawings to the mint. In an interview, Sinoc claimed that he consulted the works of several artists, as well as photographs and life studies that he'd made of Roosevelt in the 30s. And according to Sinoc, the image that he ultimately created, apparently all on his own, depicted a slightly older Roosevelt than the one that Selma had chosen to depict. And things are a little bit hazy here. No one really truly got to the bottom of his primary sources of inspiration because he passed away in 1947, just a year after the dime was released. I'm so mad at that man, Selma said of Sinoch during an interview many years later in 1994. This has happened to so many black people, she said. So according to this biography in Mooresville, her hometown, it explains that Selma wasn't given credit because only employees of the U.S. Mint can officially create pieces of currency. Regardless of credit, though, which I believe she most certainly deserves, Selma made history She was a Black woman of the 1940s who left her sleepy North Carolina town for the White House with just a roll of butcher's paper and a fruit-filled hat and got herself a meeting with the President of the United States. Selma was skilled, passionate, and respected by so many, and she kept sculpting well into her 80s, Selma actually created a nine-foot-tall statue of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1980, and this was her last monumental work before her death. She passed away in New Hope, Pennsylvania on August 19, 1995. She was 94 years old, and at the time, she was working on a piece depicting civil rights activist Rosa Parks. And although she's no longer physically with us, Selma's legacy lives on. Kayla did an amazing job describing the lasting legacy of Selma Burke. She says, Selma was not interested in just making work that helped her in her own goals. She wanted to inspire people to appreciate black culture and their own potential. And in that vein, she opened the Selma Burke School of Sculpture in Greenwich Village in 1946. And while the school itself was short-lived because of the pursuits of a real estate developer, Selma's intentions lived on. She continued to make opportunities for others to develop and share their work throughout her life. After her school closed, Selma moved back to Pennsylvania and she spent the rest of her life between Bucks County and Pittsburgh, where she fostered young artists' potential through education. She earned a PhD later on in her life from Livingston College in Salisbury, North Carolina, so we should really be referring to her as Dr. Selma Burke. She was also awarded eight honorary doctorates, so the doctor title definitely means something in her name. And like I said, Selma was creating sculptures to honor Black figures until the very end of her life. She saw success in her own craft and worked to educate others so they could be closer to the same opportunities that she was afforded through her work. Art didn't start black and white. It just started. There have been too many labels in this world. Negro, colored, black, African American. Why do we label people with everything except children of God? And that's a quote from Selma Burke. Something notable about her life that I do want to rewind and talk about was her time in New York, specifically Harlem, during the 1920s. This time period in her life caused a major shift in her creativity, which ultimately guided her sculpting career. So let's chat a little bit more about this time in history which affected so many Black men and women, specifically those in the arts. And it was called the Harlem Renaissance. Renaissance is a French word meaning rebirth. And the Harlem Renaissance was a period of rich artistic and cultural activity across many disciplines. So think music, dance, art, fashion, literature, theater, politics among Black men and women between the end of World War I in 1918 and the onset of the Great Depression and World War II in the mid to late 30s. So to understand the roots of the Harlem Renaissance, we gotta go back a little bit further in time, a little less than two decades prior. This is when a pivotal period in black history called the Great Migration began. And I could do a whole episode about the Great Migration, but in short, it was a mass relocation of about six million black people from the South to Northern, Midwestern, and Western areas of the US. The migration lasted for many years as more and more people sought out better futures for themselves and their families. People felt life away from the South, which was home to many hate groups and rigorous Jim Crow laws, would bring better opportunities and far less discrimination. It was during and after the Great Migration, which lasted many years, that Black men and women who had dropped everything to move up and out of the South discovered they had shared common experiences in their past and even still in their uncertain present and future. But instead of wallowing in hopelessness and negativity, it caused an explosion of cultural pride. It was a time of celebration and inspiration rather than fear centered in Harlem. Dorothy West, storyteller and short story writer prominent during the time of the Harlem Renaissance puts it best when she said, to know how much there is to know is the beginning of learning how to live. The Harlem Renaissance resulted in dramatically rising levels of literacy, which fueled the influx of prominent black writers, poets, et cetera, and also the creation of quite a few national organizations like the American Civil Liberties Union, which was founded in 1920. It was a period devoted to uplifting and expanding socioeconomic opportunities, and most importantly, developing race pride. In many ways, the passion surrounding the Harlem Renaissance ushered in the civil rights movement of the 40s and 50s a few decades later. It sowed some early seeds, for sure. Based on the name, one can assume that Harlem is central to the Harlem Renaissance. And while it was, it served more as an anchor for the movement than as the sole place that it occurred. In reality, the Harlem Renaissance both drew from and spread far across the U.S., the Caribbean, and the world. It was a massive movement but Harlem was certainly the cultural Mecca at this time. According to a 2015 article in Humanities Texas, by 1920, Harlem, by virtue of the sheer size of its black population, had emerged as the virtual capital of black America. Its name evoked a magic that lured all classes from all sections of the country to its streets. The Harlem Renaissance was best known for the literature, literary trends, writers, poets, all of those things that it gave birth to. But it was also a cultural and artistic movement that covered a lot of ground in all sorts of disciplines. Our very own Selma Burke found herself immersed in the Harlem Renaissance while in New York. She had just abandoned her nursing career in hopes of getting involved with something that would satisfy her artistic side. So in the 20s, she began working in Harlem for the Works Progress Administration and the Harlem Artists Guild. It was there that Selma began teaching art appreciation and education to young people in New York. And it was because of the Harlem Renaissance that Selma Burke and countless others gained the courage to dive further into the arts and creative expression. It was a hugely important movement in Black history, That continues to touch all of us today and many elements of art literature theater and beyond exist because of the harlem renaissance period and so let's talk a little bit about the lasting impact of the harlem renaissance kayla put this part together and she said while the creative flourishes of the harlem renaissance can appear at surface level like a fun time of expression and freedom within the black communities of harlem and beyond it's important to remember that the art and culture that came out of this period was birthed out of necessity For the first time since being brought into this country, Black people were in a position that allowed them to express not only the hardships and the injustices, but also the joys and celebrations that defined their lives. Those who moved up north and out west during the Great Migration did not reach a utopia when they arrived in their new cities. Racism was alive and well, all across the country, and it was systemically implanted into all the modes of mobility for newly arrived Black people. So while there was a new opportunity to be had outside of the South, there were also plenty of new struggles to fight against. A major issue of the time was finding housing. Black people were not welcome in many neighborhoods throughout the North and West. In fact, the whole state of Oregon banned black people until 1926. And so since black folks couldn't find adequate safe housing and they were often forced to live within small areas that would allow them, these neighborhoods became packed with people from all over the South who made instant communities with one another. And like I said, Harlem was one of these neighborhoods that was utterly filled to the brim with black men and women just trying to make their dreams of a good life a reality. The Harlem Renaissance was a collective scream into the world. It was a sigh of relief. It was a beginning, and it also laid the groundwork for Black expression in our country today. The 1920s may feel like a long time ago. However, 100 years is just a generation or two away, and the problems that Black folks were fleeing from and trying to thrive despite are still with us today. Inequality, racism, police brutality, redlining, educational disparities— The list, unfortunately, goes on and on and on. The artists who thrived during the Harlem Renaissance taught future generations how to respond to circumstances through art and culture. So yes, the lasting legacy of the Renaissance can be found through the art that we were left with. We have paintings, poems, clothing, sculptures, plays, and more. But we also have something less physically tangible. We have a legacy that is rooted in the examples that they left behind. We learn from those who came before us whether we are intentionally taking in their messages or not. The lessons that came from the Harlem Renaissance are vast and varied, but at their core, they are teaching us to create. In that way, ancestors from the Harlem Renaissance, and really before that as well, are urging us to make something to show the world how we feel. Brush paint on a canvas in a way that makes people understand the depths of your joy, despite your struggle. Write a poem that captures your utter frustration, Craft a hat that won't allow anyone to ignore your earth-shattering presence. Create a sculpture that evokes the pride you can't escape when you think about someone who inspires you. Creating this art may not fix your problems overnight, but it may help someone see the world through your eyes. It can serve as a call to action, or it can just be a way to get your feelings out of your head and into the world where they can have the chance to make a difference. And that is the story of Selma Burke and the Harlem Renaissance. And those last several paragraphs were written by Kayla Stokes, And guys, they give me full body chills when I read them. And I hope that you can hear our words here today and really take these sentiments with you. So now that you've heard the story of Selma Burke and the Harlem Renaissance, I want to close this episode of Thick and Thin with the rest of the chat that I had with Kayla about, you know, our inspiration for choosing Selma, why her story is so important and what pieces of it we'll be taking with us into our futures and how, you know, this can be actionable. These stories aren't just stories, they are action items for us to take with us into our daily lives, reframe broaden our perspective on things, and just get to know a story of a Black woman who is not properly credited in her lifetime for something that is such a part of us. So we talk about this, along with the importance of Black History Month, among other things. So definitely stay tuned for the rest of this episode and my chat with Kayla. And so I want to just kind of touch on why we chose her to focus on her and just more so like what... What do we, what tidbits of her life or her legacy do we find most inspiring and something that, you know, we'll latch on to?
2: Yeah, I, she's this figure that I learned about again within these past six months. And, um, I just love her story because she's so involved in our everyday lives, literally like in my pocket. But, um, I would not have known about her unless I happened upon an article. Um, and I feel like that is is so characteristic of a lot of women that I've been learning about um, that they're... I, I hesitate to use the word hero because hero is, like, such a huge word and, and has a lot of, like, <laughs> things tied to it. But they're figures that we should know about because um, they are a part of our everyday lives whether we know it or not and like if I know um who George Washington is why don't I know who Selma Burke is
1: it's just crazy how her presence we do feel her (laughs) presence every day and yet she didn't fully get proper credit during her lifetime I just I love how you know even her siblings recount like at a young age she was always trying to like you know make make lemonade out of lemons she's like messing around in the backyard with mud and sticks and like all these things and I mean, just the way that she was able to take that love for art and her passion and literally get a sitting meeting with the president of the United States all on her own. Like she got that on her own. And this is decades before the civil rights movement like really took off. And I don't know if I would ever like be that confident in my art to do that. And so I'm so inspired by that part of her story.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I love that um we get to talk about a woman who
2: a black woman who's creative because I feel like and creative not in necessarily the most uh traditional sense for black women. Like we see a lot of black female singers and black female actors. And that's great. <laughs> love that too. But um it's wonderful to pay homage to a woman who was creative in a different way.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And it's one of those things also where in her process with I mean I can't imagine the pressure that there must have been to like create this this facade this, you know, sculpture of the president and at one point she was like I need like I need more resources here and she wasn't afraid to ask for it. She's like if I want to make the best possible creation right now i need to sit in front of the president of the united states and like and it needs to happen and yeah. she was able like she asked for what she needed which i feel like as women sometimes just in general it's hard to be like i you know not just work with what you're given and like ask for more so i'm so inspired by that part as well
2: right yeah because she knew her worth and she knew that like she makes great art people like it <laughs>
1: so why not get what she needs right Exactly. To get the best possible creation out of it. So that's so inspiring. Um, I do want to also touch on, you know, with this story, my goal this month is, you know, in all months, (laughs) all months of the year is to give people sort of like an action item from the end of the story, you know, because we tell these stories on our podcasts with the hopes that people will be inspired in the moment of hearing the story, but also like down the road and they'll be able to, you know, reflect on this and further tell the story and you know increase the legacy and especially during Black History Month I think it's super important to talk about you know what are we going to do with this story especially as a white woman myself and all of my white and non-black listeners like what can we do with these stories like how can we take this into our daily lives and just increase our awareness and things like that so I want to talk a little bit about that and I'll let you lead but I I have, um, you know, I was super actually inspired by your podcast episode you put out, your most recent one, um, talking about, yeah, about, I mean, before I let you speak, I just want to say, like, I love the part when you were like, Black history didn't start with slavery. Like, when you said that, I was like, you're so right. Because, and when you said, you're like, Black history was interrupted by slavery, I was like, I got goosebumps. I'm like, that's so true. There's so much that came before. There's so but we just, you know, because sitting in our history classes, where like you said, it's not reflective of the full truth. Like sometimes there's a misconception there. So I do want you to talk a little bit about Black History Month and just the importance of black history in general.
2: Yeah, so for me, Black History Month is like, weird (laughs) for me just in general because I grew up you know I went to school that was predominantly white and that's the world that I grew up in and for me like Black History Month and Kwanzaa were the two times of year of the year when like I would get emails from teachers being like, hey, can you like contribute something? And like, I'm like, hey, I don't know what Kwanzaa is. I've never celebrated it. I'm sorry. Like, it's not a part of my traditions. not a part of my family. <laughs> That's great if it is, but I, I can't help you. Um, and then the other part of the month is, or the year was Black History Month when like, I felt unprepared to contribute anything because at that point in time, like, I was in the same history class as everyone else. And I was learning like, oh, Black history is like slavery and civil rights. But as I've gotten older, I have learned that, you know, I I had to learn that Black history is more than it did not start with slavery. And I've even as I'm learning through this podcast that I need to reframe how I'm speaking about Black history. And I think that's something that um, is a big part of this month is like, okay, let's update. Let's continue moving forward. So um, when I talk about um, slavery on my podcast, I'm working hard to not say like, oh, there were slaves. I'm trying to say enslaved people because they were people who were enslaved. They were uh, doctors and nurses and you know, uh, artists and um, all different types of people who went through slavery who were enslaved. Um, so stuff like that is something that I feel like is still very important to keep learning through this month, um, and beyond. Um, yeah, so I, I feel like for me this month has turned into like, okay, I know that I learn about Black history all year, so like, that's okay, but this month maybe is a good way and a good space to reset and, um, put even more focus on how we're learning about Black history so that. Next month, while we're still learning, we are on the – we've started Mm -hmm. off
1: on the right foot. Exactly. In the past year, I I feel like there's been a lot of progress towards that and like removing the shame involved with asking questions and trying to get to know what is – what's the right thing to say? What's the wrong thing to say? And like, you know, we're all just – we're all just trying to learn more so, you know, than anything else. With Selma, you know, her story, I think telling it and understanding it like we are on the podcast gets us closer, you know, and her and other stories as well, closer to yeah to the truth. Yeah. And
2: beyond like this one example, it is, yeah, a, a gateway into understanding the systems that are in place that um make it so that, you know, a woman who is at this point in her career can have this happen to her.
1: Exactly. She is so inspiring. Kayla, I want you to tell all of the listeners out there where they can find you uh, via the podcast, anything else that you do online, because I want, you know, us to continue to go into even more stories every week. And that's what you do on your podcast. So might as well have some people listening to you every week, too. So tell us where we can find you.
2: Sure. Yeah. So you can listen to Bias Bender anywhere you listen to podcasts. So Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you could just throw it to Google and you'll find it. <laughs> um, and I'm also on Instagram at Biasbender. And if you really want to follow me, I'm at Kayla period Stokes, <laughs> um, also on Instagram. So yeah, that's that's where I am.
1: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I can't wait for everyone to hear next week's episode as well and to listen to you on your podcast, Biasbender too. And thank you so much, Kayla. Thank you. This is so fun. (laughs) And if you liked this episode of Thick and Thin, you will love next week's episode as well because Kayla and I are back again to tell another story, another black woman in history who is still living to this day but has such an amazing, rich history and legacy that I'm so excited to talk about on the pod. So stay tuned for next week's episode as well.